0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.
1: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such
2: an honor to present this next award.
1: And here are the nominees. And... I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with such a full crowd. This is very exciting. I have, as usual, our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And joining us back again, we have our contributing writer in Hollywood, Chris Rosen. Hi, Chris.
2: Hello. Hi, everyone.
1: And then joining us again, uh, we have our TV critic and author of our brand new cover story on Viola Davis, Sonia Soraya. Hey, what's up? Sonia, I was telling you before we started recording, it feels like today is like your birthday and we're celebrating you uh, <laughs> and, like in all things and all of your accomplishments. Um, Sonia, <laughs> As we record this, it's the day that the cover has come out. Um, so we're all feeling very excited. Um, and we're going to ask Sonia a little bit about the process of writing it. Uh, we're also going to talk about a whole bunch of new movies that are out that are really worth your time, including The Old Guard and Palm Springs and some others. And then uh, Sonia and Chris are going to explain to us all the deal with Peacock, which is the new streaming service launched by Indie bc that launches this week as well um but first sonia viola davis uh the cover story is beautiful the photographs are incredibly beautiful and what i love about your story is how you kind of admit to being a mere mortal in the presence of viola davis even via zoom and how like overwhelming that was <laughs> so <laughs> what was that experience like of having her and her voice beam at you through your computer on zoom
0: it's like a laser focus, you know, because you're just like, you're head on. I was just head on talking to her. Like it's a conference call with my sister or something. Um, <laughs> and she has like a very, not only does she have so much presence, just like with her bearing and and her, her really, I, I talk about this in the piece, she has this really wonderful like resonant voice. But she also is just like so serious. Like she doesn't do... She's, she can be very funny, but she, everything is very considered. Like she doesn't do like small talk. Nothing is like sort of jokey or casual. She's very much like, I'm ready to talk about my purpose. Like I'm ready to talk to you about like my deep childhood trauma. Like <laughs> if that's like where we need to go. Um, and it's amazing to speak to someone who is like so self-aware and also so just like plugged in, you know, she's like a very conscious person. But I think that's like a lot of where her connection to her art comes from she's uh she feels a lot and she's very present and um she's intense yeah yeah but you know living (laughs) at that living at that intensity living with that passion it makes sense you know that she's as talented as she is
1: yeah. I re- What I like so much about the story is I feel like you get with, with her or with other people, you get interviews or, or profiles where you're trying to be like casual and talk about their family and their pets. And then like there's a little minute for the serious stuff. And this felt like all the big stuff. Like you guys <laughs> did not dance around anything. She really got in. She talked about like colorism. She talked about like the help, which is something she's talked about before, but she really got into it like you guys. And I don't know if that was like part of your goal from the beginning of writing it or just what happens when you're talking to Viola Davis and she goes there. You kind of just have to follow her.
0: I mean, she was definitely ready to be very serious. And she had some things that I know that she, that it seemed like she wanted to talk about. But also, like, it's just so present for her, I think. And I I think she was very conscious of, like, the opportunity of being on VF's cover. And, you know, we talked a little bit about magazines in general, about media in general, and how Black women, especially dark-skinned Black women, are portrayed. And she's always aware of how she is, Representing who she um, who she is and and who she stands for, which I think is not easy to do. I mean, that's that's the burden of representation, but she carries it very lightly because it seems to her to be again really close to her mission. You know, at some points we, I tried to talk to her a little bit because she was at home. So I, you know, I saw her husband's arm (laughs) briefly and I was like, yeah, like, talk to me. Like, what's he up to? And she was like, so anyway, like my work. And I was like, all right, (laughs) that's
3: fine. Some things are none
0: of your business. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was great. Yeah.
3: Sonia, can you tell the story I love the the story you lead off with is this kind of anecdote of Viola and Octavia Spencer protesting, right? Can you just tell, share that with our listeners?
0: Oh yeah, well, he emailed uh, Octavia Spencer, uh, who is a friend and a neighbor of Violas, and uh, spoke to Viola about this as well, and they had posted about it on his, on their Instagram, which is that they did a little mini protest near their neighborhood, so they it was in Studio City in uh in LA and they were on the corner of like Laurel Canyon Boulevard, I think. And they, they there was like 10 of them because they were worried about going to the protest because they have immunocompromised people in like their like bubble that they're quarantining with. And so they didn't want to put anyone at risk, but they also wanted to show their support and, you know, express their their rage and their, and their love in, in some way. So they organized this incredible little protest and the pictures of it are so funny because it's they're all wearing masks so you can't tell that like it's Octavia Spencer and Viola Davis and Yvette Nicole Brown was there too and they're holding up their signs and you know it was very interesting like a lot of people honked but she said they got middle fingers too like I can't believe what <laughs> someone must be someone in there must be looking back going I flicked off Viola Davis like yeah. not, not yeah. realizing <laughs>
3: like, what that was
0: um, but like you know she said it was really empowering just to be able to do that and like someone like ran them a pizza from like across the street um it, it was the perfect thing to start it off with because i felt like they found a way to like make this moment like to fit into this moment and to like make it work for them and um they're just they're just so cool they're they're very close-knit like all of them so it was yeah it was a really I, cool
3: I, I love that quote of hers we got a few beeps and we got a few fingers you know <laughs> we got, a,
1: <laughs> we, got a, we got a few fingers yeah so we have the cover and the photos along with a story shot by Dario Calmis. The cover is beautiful. Uh, it's got this really stunning image of her. And I didn't realize that there was the whole backstory of this, uh, you know, this old historical photograph he'd been inspired by to make this cover showing off her back and in this incredible profile. Um, it's beautiful. It's one of the most exciting covers um, that we've had in so long. So congratulations to Sonia and, and everyone else who made it happen. Okay, so we said we were going to talk about some movies that are out now in your virtual theaters, a.k.a. in your house. Um, And after what feels like several months of not really knowing what movies were there and kind of making do with, uh, you know, a lot of great television, but movies kind of being canceled. uh, We have a really strong handful of movies that were either always going to come out on digital or have kind of adjusted for it, including the movie that I want to hear Richard explain to me first before we get into movies we've all seen. Uh, There's a Tom Hanks movie on a boat called Greyhound. I don't know anything about it really beyond that, except that it sounds like something my dad would like. Uh, But Richard, you said you liked it, too?
2: Yeah, so Greyhound is a movie about a boat. Uh, Tom Hanks plays the captain of that boat um, during, like he did in Captain Phillips, uh, once again is playing a sort of stoic, very in-command kind of guy. Um, but this is during the Battle of the Atlantic during World War Two, which is, you know, as we all know by now, between the Pacific and Band of Brothers and Saving Private Ryan, a particular interest uh, of Tom Hanks's. Uh, and to that end, he also wrote the movie. Um, it's based on a novel from the 50s, which he has adapted into a very technical, sort of emotionally, you know 90 minute chase movie you know while you know this boat is being chased by german subs it's fine it was supposed to come out in march and then in may i think and then in june time for father's day and then uh sony sold it to uh apple tv plus and there it is and you know it's weird to have a tom hanks movie go straight to streaming but what isn't weird right now it's so technical
3: i mean you feel like you're like wow i guess i'm learning how it actually would work If you were a ship captain, the issue is I don't care how it would actually work, you know, like, like, and I can't even imagine watching it in a theater without subtitles. I watch everything with subtitles because I'm half deaf anyway, but like this movie would have been utterly incomprehensible without subtitles.
2: It's a bit like I, I was, um and I'm, you know, people with uh, children, I'm sure, can relate to this. I was, like, with a friend's kids a couple summers ago, and her oldest son wanted to explain Minecraft to me, the game. And it was like, and then you do this, and then there's this, and using all these terms, and I was just nodding. And I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I think Tom Hanks has that <laughs> same eagerness with this movie. He's like, and then they would do this, and then and then there would be this term, and this thing would happen. And, you know, you're just like, okay, but, like, who are any of these people on this boat? Like, <laughs> yeah I, I, I don't, like, I need a little more character and that's something i kind of said in my review while i appreciate it as like a chase movie it's well done but like you just don't know who who anyone is beyond americans you know running away from german subs so i don't know it could have been a bit richer i think
3: yeah i you know i had just watched master and commander a few weeks earlier and let me tell you that is a better movie than this one (laughs) And, but I think part of it is that... It,
1: that feels like a slightly unfair know, bar to clear. But,
3: you know, Captain Phillips is better. I mean, the problem is Richard nails it. It's like, of course, he does. Um, it's just you don't, you're don't, you not invested in the characters. And, and you know, the fact that it's 90 minutes sounds great, except that at the end of the 90 minutes, you're like, what the hell was that? Like, who were, were any of those people? So maybe it wasn't enough time with all of the technical stuff that he clearly wanted to bring to the screen that had never been brought to the screen before. But, uh yeah. Maybe he'll get nominated anyway.
1: Well, is it eligible to be nominated? Yeah, I think I it like is. I they really keep losing track of where it well, is. Well,
3: because it was supposed to come out in theaters, it would because be eligible. Because it was supposed to
1: be from Sony, yeah. Yes.
3: Does he get a screenplay nomination just so that they can like give Tom Hanks an, an extra Oscar <laughs> nomination?
4: Well, it would probably be like a sound nomination, I would imagine, yeah. right? Because it's like ships and there's submarines. I, <laughs> right. I'm assuming there's, there's Tom submarines. Hanks also so the sound mixer? Yeah, maybe yeah, he yeah. was. Who knows? He might have done that while he was on, uh, <laughs> on on leave from coronavirus or whatever. <laughs> was he shooting this when he got coronavirus? No.
1: No, he was shooting the uh, movie where he's playing um, Elvis's manager.
3: It's a Baz Luhrmann Elvis movie. Yeah. Hasn't he made that movie already before? I love Time Hanks, by the way. I just feel like <laughs> when you when you can do whatever you want, maybe there's some repetition. That's okay. Well, I think R-
4: Richard mentioned this, I think, was that uh, he co-wrote this, right? Or he wrote it. Or did Mike, whoever mentioned that, he did write he wrote it. it. Are we sure? Uh, the last movie he wrote, I believe, was Larry Crown. So while we all love that thing you do, which I think is like still legitimately good... His last, his track record in the last twenty years as a screenwriter is maybe not as strong as it is as a performer. So maybe that's a sign for going you know, forward for him.
2: I will say about that, if, if lest anyone accuse me of not doing my due diligence as a critic, before watching Greyhound, I rewatched Larry Crown just to reacquaint myself with Tom Hanks' writer. <laughs> it's not that bad. It's fine. Wow. It's kind of cute. It's a weird movie, but it's not like the complete disaster that it's sort of you know. Uh, is enshrined as. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think that, like, you know, I think that for me, Greyhound, in terms of Tom Hanks' is, like, interest in World War II, is the makeup for um, Midway not happening, which was supposed to be the third in HBO's World War uh, two miniseries Band of Brothers then the Pacific and then Midway was going to be the big um, like naval battle air battle one and it never happened because it was going to be crazy expensive or Spielberg was busy or something but so yeah so I you know I, this is like a very one for Hanks kind of movie but it could have been if it was out in theaters maybe one for other people too but I don't know where who's going to see it or seek it out on Apple
1: I'm Rachel Martin you probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go there's a host a guest and a light Q&A But on
0: Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR, where I invite
1: actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2%
1: Well, there's another movie out that is about 90 minutes long um, that I think is a much more straightforward crowd pleaser. Um, Palm Springs was a big Sundance hit, and it's been kind of like hyped up since then. And it was bought by Hulu and Neon together at Sundance. And I guess the plan was to have it like play in theaters and premiere on Hulu. It is now basically on Hulu and in some drive-ins. And it... And like, it, it feels like it could have been a hit under different circumstances, but it does feel like incredibly well suited to our times where it's this like quick, light movie, but it's really well made and has a lot of themes to it. It's got great performances. Like I, you know, if, if you're going to tell anyone to see anything that's streaming right now, I feel like Palm Springs is the slam dunk, right?
3: Yes. And I think this one could, should get a best screenplay nomination, maybe. I mean... Uh, it's so clever, and it happens to be very, very uh, germane to our time, right? I feel like we've all been making sort of Groundhog Day jokes about being in quarantine, and this is, like, literally about that. Like, every day is the same day. How do you get out? of How do you escape this? So I think the screenwriter might have been thinking about, like, Buddhism or something, but now it's very much a pandemic movie. And and um, Annie Sandberg, I was, like... I was hesitant to watch it because when Andy Samberg really starts being goofy, like it's not my favorite thing, but his goofiness is toned, it's down to like 7.5 and it works works well. Uh, Sometimes it goes as low as I would say (laughs) 3.5. That's my review. This yeah, even though this, I mean,
1: this movie is a comedy and it's got a lot of it's got a lot of moments of like big set piece, like there's a big dance sequence that's like been turned into gifts already. But it is kind of a somber movie about what happens if you're stuck in a time loop. That's the premise of the movie. I don't think it's a spoiler at this point. Um, and both Andy Samberg and Chris Milioti like really get into the like, hey, go live your fantasies and do whatever you want because you can't die. But also you're trapped in this time loop forever. It's got a really good balance of those two things.
3: And she's awesome. She's so good. Kristen mm-hmm.
2: yeah no it's it's a it's a movie that beyond the conceit of its plot gimmick um it really has to rely on on chemistry and i think that um it's fun to watch a movie where that really works because it doesn't always and i think that we see in this current moment of you know netflix doing most of the work of trying to revive um romantic comedies uh, palm springs isn't is, a, is is that, I think, you know, I mean, it's on Hulu, but um, I think that we have seen some uh, efforts that have not quite found the right combination of, of stars. And this one really does. And I think it's a testament to, um, you know, like Kristen Miliotti is, is known in certain circles, but she's not super, super famous and, you know, has not really carried things on her own much, um, you know, and so they took a little bit of a, of a leap of faith on her. And I think it works out really well.
4: I actually interviewed uh, Kristen and Andy for the site which was cool and uh, they were very charming together and I think you know in real life even over Zoom uh, they had a lot of chemistry which is I think like Richard said the reason the movie is so works so well is because they really do seemingly get along and uh, she was incredibly charming she joked that it it is nice to see her in this role like you said Uh, she joked that they really the only reason she got it was because Dakota Johnson wasn't available Um, but no it was actually uh, because of her but uh, Dakota Johnson maybe would have been Good as well. Uh, I, I also I loved it. I've see, watched it twice now. I find it incredibly watchable. It's a ninety minute movie that maybe feels like sixty minutes rather than the three hours of Greyhound. Um, <laughs> but uh, the thing I really love about it, I think, Mike. I think I think Andy Samberg is great. I think he totally sells it, and that he does sell the drama. And I think the way they twist the screenplay where it's like Groundhog Day, but we're coming in the middle where the main character in the story has basically been trapped in this hell for, you know, potentially decades is a really interesting uh, way to look at it. And you kind of get Andy Samberg now having gone through all the stages probably of, you know, madness uh, where he's now resigned to his life. I don't know. I think it really works. It's definitely really enjoyable uh, to watch on streaming. And I think, It just looks really – I'm just – I was so impressed with the way it looks. I mean it's like very bright, but I think they really do a lot on probably what was like a $5 budget. It actually looks cool. The sci-fi stuff kind of – you could – it's not very elaborate, but it like – you know, it's like a light in a cave. But I was like, I believe that's like a a time time loop portal. I don't know. It worked for me.
3: I, but yeah, there's something about him. Look, I, and I didn't really watch Brooklyn, uh, whatever it's called, as you can imagine. Um, but I feel like from the time of SNL to to now, like he's obviously matured a lot, and and it is kind of it, it's actually not entirely unlike. You know, where Bill Murray was at with Groundhog Day, where it's like he used to be the complete insane, like, you know, wild guy. And now he's like, you know, he's toned it down. He's a little older. And I feel like it suits it suits Andy Samberg in this role. Um, I was I was pleasantly surprised. And he he really yeah, he, he has a nice range in it.
1: I want to give a shout out to J.K. Simmons, who actually did a one episode role on Brooklyn Nine Nine this past season, which is a show that I love, and I'm honestly very curious about what it's going to do in this current time of reconsidering cops on television. Somewhat separate, um, anyway, he was great on this one episode of Brooklyn Nine Nine, and I kind of wondered like how he wound up there. And then he has this great supporting turn in Palm Springs, and I don't want to spoil too much about what happens with his character, but I think it uses the great twin poles of J.K. Simmons, where he can be like the terrifying uh, music instructor in Whiplash, and also the loving dad in Juno, and he like a hundred percent sells both sides those things um you know put jk simmons and everything it's a decent case to make
3: he's like not my tempo and he shoots an arrow into your legs <laughs> the...
1: but then he gives you a hug and he tells you to appreciate your moments in life
3: i gotta go back and watch later seasons of brooklyn 99 obviously
1: i mean uh, yeah i don't know about that <laughs> 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 i support all the ideas to so just turn them into social workers with no explanation and just continue the show from there
0: Right. yeah, it, that, that shows in a real conundrum. But yeah, well, <laughs> no need to watch it, really. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, Richard, I wanted you to talk about two more movies that you have. You've been really busy lately. All of a sudden, there's a lot of movies to review. Uh, first, you reviewed Bloody Nose Empty Pockets, which is sort of a documentary, sort of not. It's kind of one of the, the smaller films that is out there right now on streaming. But uh, I think you found it really worthwhile.
2: Yeah, it's a fascinating movie. It's from these filmmakers like the Ross Brothers, um, who uh, have done a lot of documentaries previous to this. And this was a Bloody Nose Empty Pockets was kind of a, you know, well off the radar Sundance kind of sleeper hit among critics. And I missed it there, but I was able to catch up with it in time for its release. And, um, and I kind of went in, I think, thinking it was a documentary about the last night of a bar, um, very, you know, Blue collar bar on the outskirts of Las Vegas, far from, you know, the tourist center of that strange city. But in fact, it's a fiction in, in that it's actually shot in New Orleans um, with a lot of local uh, people, most of whom had never acted before. There is one professional actor in the cast. And no, they didn't know each other, but they were all brought together into this bar to create this sense of that they were all these bar fly regulars who hung out there all the time um, and were, sort of, were saying goodbye to this um, you know, this really important um, community center, essentially, even though they're getting really drunk, because most of them uh, have pretty heavy alcohol uh, problems. Um, As I don't know what the case is for the people in real life, but they were really drinking when they were filming this. The filmmakers say it was done responsibly. Um, So when I reviewed the movie, I kind of sang its praises and then took a turn and was like, but I also don't know how... Ethical it is, I guess. Um, in in a variety of ways, I think it's being you know, it's not being lied about in the marketing, but I think people are kind of going in, like myself, thinking it's it's approaching a documentary when it's really not. And how much agency do the people in it have in the making of the film and how they were portrayed? That said, my qualms with it don't actually, I think it. I, in some ways it may make me want people to see it more just so we can, you know, people can discuss it because I think it's a, whatever it's doing, which I don't really know what it's doing, um, is really, really interesting. Um, and it's like available to rent online in a kind of platform digital release. So it's in some cities now where you can rent it and then it'll keep expanding throughout the summer, I believe.
1: Thanks. I uh, Yeah, I Had heard about it, like, I think very briefly from Sundance and honestly, like as much as um, Palm Springs and then we're also going to talk about the old guard um, feel kind of like exactly the summer popcorn movies that we're missing out on right now. There's always the thread every summer of like the small scale indie theater hit. So, and you know, then First Cow is now available to rent digitally, too. So I like this like parallel thread going through as if almost as if it's a regular summer.
2: Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that like, if I could make a comparison to a recent movie that our listeners would be familiar with, probably is is Tangerine, um, mm. Sean Baker's film, which I believe also came out in the summer. Um, I could be wrong about that. It feels um, like summer but, um, but, you know, that's a movie that took people who hadn't really acted before uh, and put them in a fictionalized version of something like their own world and then just kind of told a story that wasn't real, but it felt real in parts. This, I think, is doing something a little bit extra synthetic, um, Bloody Nose Empty Pockets is. But if something about Tangerine's approximation of verite was interesting to you, this, I think this will be interesting as well.
1: Um, Okay, and finally, in our rundown of all the movies out there, uh, I have been so excited to talk about The Old Guard ever since I watched it on Netflix last weekend. I kind of watched it coming back from a travel day and I was exhausted and loved it so much, like way more than I even expected to, even after reading your really positive review, Richard. Um, Okay, so, Richard, you wrote in your review just about about how it's like kind of a standard action movie, but then also feels fresh in all of these different ways. And it seems like you were like similar to me, like weren't quite sure what to make of it and then really fell for it.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, because from a distance, you squint and you're like, okay, comic books, movie, adaptation, I don't know, they're butt-kicking Immortals, I guess. And yeah, okay, Charlize Theron's the lead instead of Gerard Butler. So I guess that's interesting and that's different. (laughs) But then the closer you get, and it doesn't take really much work, you see, oh, it's directed by Gina Prince-Bythewood, who made Beyond the Lights and Love and Basketball, and is, I believe the first Black woman to ever direct a big-budget action film like this, let alone one that's, you know, based on graphic novels or comic books. So that's really exciting. And then you look and you see, oh, Kiki Lane is in it. And she was, you know, this is such a big breakout in um, If Beale Street Could Talk, and that's cool. And then you have um, two characters who are these... I mean, this is a spoiler, maybe, but like these two guys who were, who met fighting in the crusades. Cause again, they are immortals and fell in love. Uh, and there's a huge scene where these two men in a huge action movie proclaim their love for each other. And then they kiss in front of the bad guys. And it's just like, I've never seen that before. So this, the movie just keeps, um, the more you look at it, it just has so many firsts and exciting things. It still feels like a fun, you know, butt kicking, maybe egregiously violent action movie. Um, Um, and yet it organically introduces all of these different perspectives, both behind the camera, and in front of the camera. Um, and it just shows you, like, you don't lose what's fun about an action movie by including more people, uh, and more life, you know, lived experiences in those stories. Um, you know, I, I, I'm much more willing to talk to someone who's quibbling about the violence than anyone who's pushing back against, you know, what they see as old guards, like faux representation. I think it genuinely is doing something, um, in its own small way that's important.
1: Chris, how'd you like the old guard?
2: Uh, I thought it was fine. I think what Richard <laughs> said is true, but I think
4: as an action movie, and this is not the fault of the old guard, but I've become numb to the John Wick style of action violence, which is just like these very choreographed fight scenes where people get shot. There's even even an R-rated movie, and this is really violent. There's like It's bloody bloodlessness, I guess I would call it, where it's just it's like people are getting shot. There's nothing going on. A lot of headshots, a lot of like... In crazy violence, you've seen it in this just this year. I've seen it in Extraction. I've seen it in Birds of Prey. Obviously, Old Guard, John Wick Three last year. Even back to like Kingsman. This reminded me of a little like the first one when Colin Firth kills a bunch of uh, people in the church. I don't know if you remember that scene. So that part of it, I really just found like kind of road. All the stuff that I loved about it is like kind of like what Richard said and the performances and the acting and all the interpersonal stuff beyond the action. I really enjoyed and I think like when you have a great director with like really good and interesting actors doing this material uh, that elevates it in a way that is like kind of cool and fresh. It's just like when it got into like shooting up stuff and just like, big set pieces I thought were severely lacking. But I think that's the style now of action, and it seems like people really enjoy that style. So obviously I am in a minority in that case of uh, thinking this. The other thing I'll say, and not to spoil it for those who have not seen it, the stuff I found really most interesting is all the things that happen in like the last 10 minutes and set up a wild potential of sequels that I cannot wait to see because I think those are like, they, as they go in, the movie is about you know, not a spoiler to say the movie's about these immortal soldiers or whatever, who are fighting. And, you know, there's a pharma villain played by Dudley Dursley from the Harry Potter movies who is just full mustache twirling the entire time. And then they kind of like build to this crescendo at the end whatever and it just sets up all these cool things and like kind of untangles the mythology of the group i was weighing on that totally was like yes i want to see 10 of these movies based on what happens at the end so uh that it just took so long to get there this does feel like the first act of what i imagine will be a very lucrative franchise for netflix if and when they're ever able to make more movies
1: well they filmed the whole thing in europe so in theory they could go in production like next week just stay sure
4: yeah maybe they go to new zealand for the sequel right (laughs) (laughs)
1: About the action, I think I'm mostly with you in that, like, the huge violent... You know, bloody gun battles is not usually my thing, but I think there are so many standout action sequences separate from that. Like Charlie Theron and Kiki Lane have a fight sequence on a plane that, like, is scored and shot in a way that it's like fun. It's a caper. You know that the two of them are kind of just like testing out each other's powers, and it's so satisfying to watch. And then toward the end, you get into this big gun battle, but like they all have to protect one of them, but you know for reasons. Um, So there's like kind of a balletic grace to the way that it's done, Um, and especially because I haven't seen a Marvel movie in a while. No one has, but you got. I got so sick of the like giant city in peril, alien ships arriving. Like that whole thing felt like every single big scale movie had that, that all of the action sequences are just fights and people in a room. Um, I really enjoyed that part of it.
4: I do. I uh, wanted to talk about that fight scene on the plane. I thought it was really good. And you mentioned like the, uh, the scoring of using like pop songs and stuff and not traditional like score for this. I think that is something that uh, uh, Gina brings to it that I found really refreshing too, where it's like, it definitely feels different in that regard than like, Certainly extraction from like a few months ago. Uh, the other person I wanted to shout out was Math- Matthias Schoenarts, who rules in this movie. He's so good. Uh, he should be in all of these, any kind of action movie. And he's so good at this. And like, I think him and Charlize are really great. And we've barely even talked about Charlize. She's tr- quite good in it, I think. She's definitely done this kind of performance before, obviously. But I think it's like a big step forward from like Atomic Blonde. And while not as good as Fury Road, certainly like more on that wavelength. To me, at least it was.
1: I feel like it's a real missed opportunity that no one's got the licensing for Fury Road on Netflix. Like they, Because after I watched this, I immediately wanted to watch Fury Road. And it's not on Netflix. It's not on HBO Max. I'm sure it's somewhere. But I guess that means I should just buy the damn thing.
4: You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Okay, so as I mentioned earlier, uh, we brought in Chris and Sonia to talk about Peacock, which is the NBC streaming platform launching this week. Um, I feel like six months ago, maybe when they announced it, I was like, what is this going to be like another streaming platform? But since then, we've had Disney Plus, we've had HBO Max. It feels like we kind of. Know the gist of how this goes. Um, Sonia, you wrote a review of one of uh, a, a strong handful of original projects they have. They've got an adaptation of Brave New World, which I, I don't know if it's the dystopia that we want these days as we live through one, but uh, <laughs> it seemed like you were a fan. And, and maybe that's a, a promising start for this platform.
0: Yeah, it's, it was well done. I mean, I feel bad for the lay, the average viewer right now because I just feel like <laughs> The term "peacock original" just sends me reeling. Like I don't know what that. Is. <laughs> I barely know what that is. Um, and and as you and as you were just saying, like we've had so many come out. You know, Disney Plus wasn't that long ago, and now HBO Max. I I can barely sort of keep straight what the brand identities of these things are supposed to be. And I think Brave New World actually really cements how muddled that is because. Um, I think it was originally developed for USA. I think that was like originally how it was greenlit. And then it like made its way over to Peacock. But I can't really tell you the difference between like what the Peacock sort of brand is versus like the HBO Max brand. Versus any anything else, versus Netflix or anything like that. Like it's a it's a very nice kind of slick sci-fi adaptation. But I genuinely like. Uh, I I don't know. The, everything else that I I associate Peacock with is sitcoms. Uh, NBC's NBC sort of classic uh, library of sitcoms. So um, it's interesting. It's just really interesting to to see it come out of the gate with this. And I have no idea what uh, who's going to watch it.
3: <laughs> why does this feel? I, I Doesn't it feel like this is just the straw that broke the camel's back? For some reason, it's just like one too many streaming services. I don't know why.
0: Well, yeah, but I think it's partly because the other ones were trying to put so many things under the same umbrella like disney was like we're going to put the entire disney back catalog and we're going to like we're going to do this mar- like the marvel stuff and we're going to try to do something with disney programming and hbo max is like we're going to have all your favorite hbo shows and we're going to have a bunch of other cable stuff too and then peacock happens and you're like what makes this one different like what makes this one right. More, more something else that I need to
4: subscribe to. Um, but you
3: don't have to pay for it, or you, or you do. So that's actually
4: what I would say. That is beyond the content. I have not watched the originals, but I actually have experienced the platform because I got a preview of it, and I think that is actually what separates it from these other ones. Is that there is a robust free tier, as they're calling it, basically that has I think like seventy five hundred or ten thousand hours of programming. Uh, none of the originals are on that, but you could just download it and you could watch it. And there's ads on it. Like, I think they said no more than five minutes every hour. Uh, I think what they're really going for, what NBC is hoping to do is basically just replicate linear television for people who are cord cutters and streaming. So like Peacock has, on that free tier, there's also the subscription tier, which is, they have two versions of the subscription tier. It's pretty silly, but there's like, you could pay $5 $5 a month for to the right to watch Brave New World, uh, if you're really interested, with commercials. So you get that, great. And then you pay $10 a month to watch Brave New World. And they have other stuff beyond Brave New World. But using that as the example, $10 a month to watch Brave
3: New World without commercials. So that's, right. those are your options. Oh. Which Hulu, which Hulu kind of has.
1: Yeah, yeah, that is kind of yes. like what Hulu has.
3: I will say this about, about that tier thing. This is how it has functioned in my life and in my household, is that I was paying the Hulu cheap rate because I was like, this is ridiculous. I can sit through a few commercials. And every time the commercials would come on, my wife would look at me and be like, seriously?
1: For the- <laughs> you get shamed into paying for Hulu so,
3: Yeah so finally I was like I gotta pay for the for the expensive tier So I do think that there is some You know there's a use case for that model But it seems complicated The,
4: the other thing they have that I thought was different from Netflix and whether or not And again to replicate like the linear Like, stream, like TV like to replicate and also like Pluto TV and all those free Things that you could watch is they have something called Channels uh, which are like Right now I think there's like 15 or 20 of them that are going to be available at launch and they're like SNL Vault and it just streams all day old SNL clips or whatever it is and like they have like a Today Show highlight channel so you could just sit there if you're like melting on the couch and have nothing better to do I guess the idea is you would like flip around and like enjoy Peacock by just sitting there and watching it like it's regular TV and I assume those are broken up by ads also. I don't know if there is a movies one yet, um, but they do have a lot of their movies are available on the free tier as well. I think they cited like the Born movies. I went through the movie library yesterday, actually. They have it's a weird mix. They have like a lot of Alfred Hitchcock classics from like the, you know, his classic movies, like Vertigo, Rear Window, Psycho, North by Northwest, anything that Universal basically released from Alfred Hitchcock is available on There, they have a lot of old universal horror movies like Dracula and Frankenstein, like with Bela Lugosi, those kind of things. They have some Abbott and Costello uh movies, they have a few Spike Lee movies, but not all of Spike Lee's universal movies. So, they have Do the Right Thing, which is cool. Clockers, Crooklyn, The Sweet Blood of Jesus, which I if you guys remember, that was like the vampire movie that <laughs> oh, yeah. he did on Kickstarter. Yeah. So, like, those are available. Um, but they only and like if you're looking for like Fast and Furious, there are two Fast and Furious movies, Tokyo Drift and the fourth Fast and Furious, not the entire package <laughs> of Fast and Furious. There's like, wow. you know, it's like a weird, like all the rights are still weird. I saw today eventually, and I was kind of surprised by this, eventually they'll have like Trolls World Tour, Richard's favorite movie on uh, on this service. They'll have like a few others on there as well. I assume King of Staten Island eventually will exist on Peacock or whatever. So that's kind of like how they're doing it. They don't have – so, and then more twists, not to make this too uh, complicated, but it's their fault, I guess. Uh, they have an office channel, which has like clips of The Office. And I don't even know how they're broken up. It's not full episodes. It's like office shorts. But they don't have full episodes of The Office until next year because Netflix still has The Office until January. So it's like those are the wow. kind of things so, as they're That sounds like launching. it should have been
3: a Quibi, a Quibi series. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> office so the shorts. Office. Office shorts could have. Sit, yeah. cause it's not too late to save Quippy with Office Shorts.
1: I was just looking at the free tier movies. They they sent out a press release today. Like if they're doing like a linear TV version where like you can just tune it in and like if I turn on their TV channel and like part of The Matrix or Jurassic Park is on, I would absolutely like replicate the feeling of having TBS and just like watch whatever part of the movie was on. Like that's a not a bad idea. I mean, I don't know how many people miss that experience of just like flipping channels to watch part of a movie, but uh, that appeals to me deeply. Also for Oscar people, it has the sting. You can watch the sting. Best picture. The sting
4: is on there as well. Yeah,
1: I just feel like that Today Show, that
0: Today Show highlights channel is going to be like really popular in doctors' offices, like reception <laughs> <rooms> or something <laughs> like that. Um, I can, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I think um, the whole the whole idea of like missing linear TV is something that that NBC has been really invested in. Um, just like in general, like. They do sort of do a like make it 2006 again through science or magic um, thing, and they have these upfronts coming up. I guess they'll they'll have already aired by the by the time this uh, our uh, our podcast goes live. But um, they're gonna have the casting crew of Thirty Rock doing their upfronts um, in a couple of days. And I guess like that's that's really what they're based on what you've just said, Chris. It just sounds like that's really what they're trying to sell us is like, remember how how TV used to be? Like you could just go back to that, and I think it is very appealing that you wouldn't have to pay a lot to see. You wouldn't have to pay anything in order to see, you know, Psycho with with commercials, but <laughs> but you'd still you could still get to see it. Um, but yeah, I guess the originals is where I start to feel a little bit confused about. Um, what they're up to, and I, I know Richard, you saw some of the other originals that they have, right?
2: Yeah, so I reviewed uh, two similar things about British um, spy, like intelligence. Basically, um, the most notable one is literally called Intelligence, and it's a show about um, you know whatever clandestine agency within the UK um, looks at cybercrime or you know monitors cybercrime. And it stars David Schwimmer as the brash, you know, American NSA guy brought over to kind of liaise with this um, British uh, group of, of, you know, hacker watchers, I guess. And it's very much trying to be Veep, at least in the pilot episode. And I really rolled my eyes hard because it was like the Veep tone is really hard to get right. You know, all the profanity and the, you know, insults and that fast paced sort of satire, sort of screwball kind of thing, that's really hard to do. And, you know, Iannucci can't even always do it when he tries to do it. And he, you know, invented it because (laughs) uh, it's his thing. Um, But, you know, after the first episode, it sort of settles into more of just a really zany workplace comedy rather than trying to be pointed and political. Um, you know, there's some jokes about it. And, you know, after about six episodes, it, it kind of won me over. Like, Schwimmer, is, it's fun to see Schwimmer. The rest of the cast is good. It's it's not going to be any kind of phenomenon. Um, and then the other show, which is a more serious drama about um, kind of like deepfake technology and and how that can and, and certainly will um, come to really muddy uh, what uh, the truth is uh, in our world, that already aired on the BBC a year ago so or or if not on the bc in the uk a year ago so it's not really brand new it's new to american audiences so it's not like the sexiest opening salvo of new content beyond brave new world which has the the gloss and the stature of what we have selfishly come to or greedily come to expect of you know any new streaming platform launch
1: Do we feel like a platform like this needs an original hit to be able to stand out? Like I'm trying, like Apple, I guess Dickinson was kind of its like big flagship hit. Netflix obviously broke through with originals like way back when, but now the competition is different. I can't think of an HBO Max original that's broken through unless there's something I'm overlooking. I I wonder how much Peacock like needing an original to break through really matters.
2: Well, it's all about the catalog ultimately, isn't it? Yeah, that's kind um, of what I was thinking. You know, obviously... You know, Because Apple didn't really have that, and so you really just had to subscribe to the service for those specific shows. If you want to see Jason Momoa in a show about people who can't see, called See, you have to subscribe to Apple TV+. Plus. But you're not getting a ton more than that. Um, obviously, HBO Max has the huge catalog of not only HBO, but um, everything at Warner, or a lot of things at Warner. So I think Peacock will just kind of exist as that for a while. And then it'll be, I know they have a lot of other original programming in the works and set to come out. So it'll be interesting to see how those fare. But I think you're right, Katie. Like, ultimately, they might not need it in the way that back in the day, before this was, you know, we were all inured to this thing, um, Netflix really did kind of, you know, they needed House of Cards to really make a splash or, or Orange is the New Black. Um, I don't know how necessary that is anymore if they already have the catalog.
1: And it seems like a decent bet that, like, I'll get Peacock for free and watch whatever it is and then probably pull a mic and, like, eventually pay money so I stop having to see ads so I can watch, you know, like, the Office reruns I think are going to be a huge draw for it. So, I don't know. Maybe maybe Peacock uh, deserves more credit than your average new streaming platform.
4: I mean, I think it does. I, I would say, like, I do think it does. It will need some... Because I think like Disney Plus had the catalog, but I think Mandalorian was such a huge hit for them, and like people were really interested, and that drove probably like a ton of interest in the service. And then like, I mean, I'm sure like the, the very like Katie, you probably watch it more than like some other people because you have kids. But like, do pe- have people paid attention to Disney Plus between the end of Mandalorian and like Hamilton, right? Like, how much were you mm-hmm. going back to watch like old Star Wars? How many times can I see Empire Strikes Back, right? Like, it kind of like you need that. I think you need that kind of like programming hit of like new content, but it also needs to be probably okay. The later Peacock originals are all reboots. At least the ones they're like very excited about are like a saved by the bell reboot that they think people are going to care about a punky Brewster reboot that they think people are going to care about and a Battlestar Galactica reboot. I guess if one of those shows are really good and they're on the premium tier that you have to pay for, the hope is that people will be like, well, I have to subscribe now. Um, to it, but I, I just think like, like you said, probably in the interim, it'll be a lot of people like going like, oh, wait, what's that? Uh, yeah, I could download it. I could watch a old episode of Thirty Rock with like two commercials in it instead of three. Oh, that sounds cool. All right. <laughs> they have, you know, like that's <laughs> I mean, like that's kind of like what I'm expecting of it. And I mean, I saw some data point and I won't know it's I don't know it specifically, but I did see I think it was in the Times yesterday. They did a, like an unveiling of Peacock before this press release came out on the day we're recording um, that they were like, it has only a, it only had a slightly higher uh, awareness factor than Quibi did. <laughs> Which is a bad sign, I would imagine, for a Peacock. But they're going to go and be like, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, we're NBC yeah. and stuff. They were going to they were gonna try to use the Olympics, obviously, to program, like, to advertise it. And that kind of washed out. Eventually, they'll have sports and, you know, kind of other live programming. I mean, like, they'll have, like, they, they touted, like, they'll have an NFL wild card game. I guess that would stream on peacock while also being on linear nbc I, i'd imagine but
1: i was looking at the way they they promoted sports in that press release and i was like oh boy they really bet big on like the u.s open and the olympics to help them launch this because yeah. like imagine the olympics happening this summer and you're like oh i can download peacock and watch like pole vault at three in the morning Like, sure I would absolutely do that
2: yeah so peacock can't wait <laughs> Is Peacock the only streaming platform thus far to have a Katy Perry song kind of ready built in as its theme song? (laughs) Like Katy Perry doesn't have a song about Hulu, right?
4: I think she has one coming out about Quibi though.
2: I really do. Yeah, yeah. that is true.
4: (laughs) I think her whole new album
2: is Quibi. They paid her
1: eight million
4: dollars to write a Quibi song. It's a Quibi concept album.
1: That does it for this week's show. Uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, please subscribe, tell your friends. Um, follow us on Twitter at littlegoldmen Men. And go, go to vanityfair.com where you can read Sonia Soraya's uh, Viola Davis cover story and reviews of Peacock originals from Sonia and Richard. And Chris explaining all of that complicated peacock tier stuff that he just put to us. Uh, you can Google it and find more information. <laughs> uh, and you can follow us on Twitter on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos And Chris.
4: Chris J. Rosen.
1: And Sonia. Sonia Saraya. And Mike had to run, but he is Mike underscore Hogan. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of our forthcoming Little Gold Men magazine goes to Sonia Saraya.
0: It's going to be, like, really popular in doctor's offices.
3: Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair.